Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we talk about culture, belief, wellness, and current events all through the lens of faith. Welcome back to another episode of Science Radio. My name's Jesse, I'll be your host today, and I am honored and privileged to be joined today by the one and only Mr. Mark Hadley. Mark, welcome to the podcast. I, I wish for you to repeat that description of myself to my family, particularly my <laughs> boys. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. We'll, we'll create a fanfare for you, Mark, that you can play every time you enter, enter a room or, or something like that. I think that'd be great. Actually, the breakfast table could do with that sort of introduction. That'd be great. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. So again, welcome to the, the podcast, Mark. It's great to have you. For those of our listeners who haven't encountered your work, we have had you on the podcast before and it was a little while ago. That was when Daniel was was hosting it. But for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and where you fit into the picture? Sure. Look, to begin with, my basic designation is writer. It's kind of unhelpful when it comes to tax time and they want to know what your occupation is. But basically, I'm a scriptwriter, so I spend my time scripting documentaries and animations and short films, things like that. I also write books and articles for wonderful publications like Science. So yeah, I, my role really in the review side of things is to have a look at what a culture is saying inside of a, a film. You know, you, there's plenty of reviews out there that'll tell you how good the performance of the actor is or how this sits in the career of a particular director. But my particular focus is is saying, well, what is this worldview? What does it say about the world around us? And how does that compare to our worldview as Christians? Well, Today, we are talking about a very specific piece of media that has a very specific worldview, which I think is really exciting and interesting and maybe a little controversial, but I think nevertheless has something really interesting to say to culture and about culture. I want to quickly flag, though, we're talking about The Last of Us, the HBO TV series that at the time of this recording is just about to wrap up its first season but by the time you listen to this it'll be it'll be long gone this is a video game adaptation so we're not just talking about film we're not just talking about television we're talking about an adaptation of a pre-existing piece of media now I have seen a couple of video game films in my time. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that I've gone out of my way to watch them because they don't generally tend to be all that good. I'm just a little curious, Mark. Have you had much experience with video game adaptation films and television in the past? More than I really want. <laughs> the truth <laughs> The truth is that because I'm a film reviewer, I see a lot of films, you know, maybe a couple of hundred a year. And so when a major franchise, a gaming franchise actually brings out a film or does a cooperation to bring out a film, you generally find yourself in the seat trying to find out whether or not it was actually worth the effort of the people who wrote the script. And you're, you're right in saying that, you know, they're not all that to look forward to, to be honest. Most of them in the past have been awful. Some of them have been barely watchable, like Uncharted, which is probably one of the most recent ones, wasn't so with Tom Holland from Spider-Man fame, wasn't too bad if you just want to suspend your sense of reality for a long <laughs> period. But then you do the same thing with, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a few things. Who can really believe that Harrison Ford actually sat on top of that submarine the entire way to <laughs> the secret island? <laughs> so, you know, there, there are moments when you're are asked to suspend reality in Uncharted too. But then there are other ones which are just schlock, you know, for want of a better phrase. Assassin's Creed, Mortal Kombat, they are particularly poor adaptations. And so it's a big thing when somebody says, let's take a really beloved game like The Last of Us and turn that into, you know, a major media property, whether it be a film or a television series. In this sense, a television series, which is really just a series of films stacked up end to end. And I feel like they've done better than most people feared. 
You know, if that makes sense, I feel I feel like there was a there was a lot of apprehension as to how it would come off, and HBO was the right production to bring it to the screen in a sensible way, and they've done that really well. Yeah, I think I think the comparison to Uncharted is is an apt one because that is also a Naughty Dog sort of a PlayStation adaptation, beloved franchise that many people were hoping was going to be. <laughs> good <laughs> and, and of course there there are a lot of big differences between a, a video game like uncharted given that it's a you know high action octane sort of adventure versus well, something that it, is a lot more personal than like the last of us i mean it just goes to show that even in films with a great deal of suspension of disbelief you know you can have some good things so Mark Wahlberg and Tom Holland's interaction in Uncharted is fun, you know, so you get a few laughs going on there. But you can't just stack up, you know, a, a previously great storyline or action adventure and some good actors and some laughs and expect that people will land the storyline and be happy with where it lands. And so I feel like that's a lesson in scripting. We have a saying in my business that only a good script promises a good result. And you'd expect that from script writers. You know, we, we do believe that we're the, the most important thing in any process. I'm sure cameramen believe they're the most important process too. But, but really, if you watch films and you think to yourself, you know, why Why did that leave me feeling kind of empty or or annoyed or or I felt the whole thing was pointless? It's usually those mistakes are made at the scripting level. So when the person takes the successful product like the game and goes to transpose it from a gaming medium into you know, a film and television medium, they're going to make choices because some characters don't exist you know, in both franchises or some characters, there's little known about them. And we'll probably talk a bit more about that when we get on to talking about The Last of Us. But choices are made. And if these choices are the wrong choices, right at the scripting level, no amount of special effects are going to save you. And we all learned that from the Star Wars franchise. You know, there's just... <laughs> You know, there's there's just nothing that makes yeah. Jar Jar Binks, you know, an attractive character. You know, and so, you know, with the Phantom Menace, it was a classic case of a storyline that just wasn't a satisfying storyline, even though it had piled in special effects. And what people remember are individual scenes like the, you know, fantastic laser duel with sorry, sword fight with Darth Maul, but those things are individual islands in an otherwise unreasoning script. And this is what people really ask of of any adaptation. Does it does it manage to hold on to the golden spark, the idea that made the original so attractive? Does it make the trans is it transposed safely and securely over into the new product? And in this case, I think The Last of Us, they've managed to hold on to it. You know, that, that sense of trepidation, the, the sense of the long story that we're with the characters through. Yeah, all of this seems to somehow have made the leap. And that's probably because the script was well worked on before it got anywhere near a camera. I want to get to The Last of Us, but before we go there, I'm just interested i'm not sure how much experience you've had you know working or looking at video game scripts but what is it about that adaptation that is so difficult i mean i know that most video games tend to be more action oriented and a lot of video game writing to be frank is pretty pretty bad but what is it do you think that makes it so difficult for a production company to adapt well a beloved video game to either the silver screen or to television? Well, to begin with, the attraction of video games is often an active experience. So you're, you're, you're you know, in a very literal way, you're physically engaged in the storyline, but you're adapting the story a bit yourself and you're enjoying the elements that come along, but you're playing a role. You're a, you're a character. When it comes to film and TV, you're actually in a passive role. And so the storyline has to engage you in a way that the video game didn't have to. You know, it's nice to have a rich world to operate in, in a video game, but the story plays a second role to the 
to you know a second part to the actual action itself and the, and your interaction with that game mechanics and things like that tend to capture your attention more than the storyline in fact to be honest with the many video games the cutscenes that are just dropped in are, are just an excuse to try change the location you know from, <laughs> from we're, we're no longer in a in a hangar now we're on the planet's surface or something like yeah. that and so yeah. It's, you know, it, it, in your enraptured with the gameplay. When we actually have a script that actually involves the same sort of characters, we we are less forgiving of the idea that we just turned a left corner and suddenly found ourselves, you know, in a cockpit rather than in a, a, a mech suit or something like that on the, on the planet. You know, you you have to have a reason for things and you have to have a reason that makes sense. You know, we have our own lodestones as to what is humanly possible and what is, you know, humanly reasonable for us to sort of accept. And that comes into sharper focus in games. So firstly, it's it's the level of participation. And then secondly, it's the level of humanity that's actually displayed. And you actually have to not simply transfer it, but you have to deepen it. Uh, that level of humanity or otherwise it just becomes unreasonable to us. We're suddenly aware of the screen and aware of the plot line and aware of things in a way where we before, like the game, we were just immersed. And uh, and that's a pretty big job. I've only done a couple of adaptations in my life. I've adapt, adapted books to the screen and they are incredibly difficult processes to do something like that. So, you know, my hat is off to people who can manage it successfully. Mm. The one thing that really annoys me in video games a lot of the time is when you have the the really blank protagonist, literally the protagonist <laughs> that does not have any voice lines, that you select the, the, the line and then the other person just reacts to you. I, I understand like the whole, you know allowing a player to inhabit the blank shell of the character that you're supposed to be playing. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a bugbear that I've always found really <laughs> annoying. When it comes to The Last of Us, though, I think that the one of the things that I really enjoyed about the video game when I played it, you know, a couple of years ago, was the the little stories that go along the way. And this comes up time and time again, even when you're doing something as menial as, you know, going into an abandoned house and, you know, looking for a couple of rusty forks or some ammunition or, or, or whatever. The way that the writers of the game were actually able to create these tiny pockets of story along the way, I think probably in my mind, at least played a, a large role in actually being able to transition that story from a video game setting to a a tv show setting and as you mentioned you know this is definitely and i think most of us can probably agree one of the better video game to 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 film tv adaptations that we've seen in in recent memory in fact i i I can't think of any off the top of my head that I would even put above this one. What do you see as being the choices that the that HBO and, and the showrunners have made to to make this show what it is and and so good? Well, what you've been reacting to inside of the video game with these, you know, the side stories as you put them, um, is a depth of a world and a pace of, of story delivery. Let's deal with the first one. You know, in terms of the depth of a universe, you get the sense that there is more than just a single line of approach through this or just a very narrow view. So your your hero, in this case, Joel, inhabits a world that is bigger than himself. And and that that is actually laid out quite clearly in the TV series. Just the idea that that the world itself is really quite deep. You you get glancing storylines about people who are, for example, one of the characters we meet in passing is responsible for overseeing people who clean up sewage. You know, now that's not a major storyline, but it does tell us that that's right. You know, in these quarantine zones, somebody has to deal with the sewage. You know, we're not overlooking the basic aspects of human life. And so the depth of the storyline makes it attractive in itself. But the second thing, too, is the pace. What you've enjoyed, too, in the video game is the idea that you don't have to just rush running and gunning, you know, from one particular scene to another. But there is actually a pace that allows you to absorb the world in 
enjoy the world and play the world at the same time. Now, there has been a very conscious decision made in moving The Last of Us from a game into a, a rich media content to decide to use TV rather than film. Now, that's because we're living in, you know, for, you may or may not feel this way, but I would say that we're living in the golden age of TV. You know, it wasn't the 1950s and I Love Lucy. It's basically now. And that's because uh, the formats have come along and the distribution services have come along that allow people to do long story arcs based over multiple episodes without interruption by, you know, clashing things like ads you know, and promos and things like that. So now for the artist, they can concentrate on something that we would never have sat through in the cinemas. You're looking at 10 hours, you know, and and there's just no way we would have sat still for 10 hours in a in a cinema, even if they played all of the Lord of the Rings films back to back on a, a movie <laughs> fest day. You know, we still have to go out. And but in yet in, in that respect, we're sitting uh, for prolonged periods of time, following a story arc piece by piece. And these limited series, you know, eight to 10 episodes, those sorts of things, these limited series are actually, you know, rich, deep worlds, which we are allowed to inhabit and we're allowed to progress through in a slower pace. So, you know, they're probably the two big elements that HBO and the producers have concentrated on. Depth and pace and allow Joel and Ellie to inhabit this world and us to inhabit it alongside them. So so we also then get a sense of things like, for example, they're on a journey and we get a sense of how long the journey is. We're not skipping from scene to scene or we're not doing a, a montage of walking through the snow or something like that to you know wipe away a couple of months. We're actually moving through at their pace and it makes it all the more realistic because of it. So, getting into the show then, yeah. in your article that you wrote for us in the April issue of, of Science Magazine, there are a couple of different threads that you pick up on about the show. So, there's, there's the Samaritan angle where you compare and contrast the characters to a very famous parable that Jesus tells. There's a thread about morality and the shifting tides of, of, of morality and how this sort of post-pandemic world really has shaped the world into something very different. And then there's the, the piece that you talk about a little bit with when it comes to relationships, sexuality, and some of the things around that. So I'm going to throw it to you, Mark. The floor is yours. Oh, thank you. Look, let's let's dig into, let's have a look at the Samaritan approach to begin with. Let's take the order you're, you're dealing with. I think that it's a very interesting idea, the contrast between interested and disinterested love. So in Jesus' famous story, The Good Samaritan, you know, for those people who might be struggling to remember, basically we're talking about a man who is is beaten up by robbers and is in a dying condition on the side of the road. And then multiple characters come past him. And Jesus said, then focuses in on one particular fellow, a Samaritan, his enemy, who actually helps him and goes out of his way to basically save his life. This is a case of disinterested love. You know, Jesus says, this is a story that's illustrating who is my neighbor? You know, who is the person I'm supposed to be caring for? If I'm supposed, if God says, love your neighbor as yourself, then who is my neighbor? Now, the person who asks that question of Jesus is a, a very nationalistic figure uh, inside of the story. He's a, a, a dedicated Jew, a teacher of Jews. And so, you know, he's focused very much on his neighbor being other Jews. So to actually have a Samaritan and a Jew consider each other neighbors or behave in a way as neighbors is a very disinterested thing to do because Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. So what we have is this picture of a person who, for no benefit to themselves, decides to identify with the person who has been injured is on the side of the road and the good Samaritan picks him up, dusts him off, cares for his wounds pays for his continued care with no sign of benefit to himself. So there's the first picture that Jesus gives us. Now, we have a loving story in The Last of Us. You know, we have Joel and Ellie building a relationship all the way through. But what we've got to 
sort of peer closely at is to realize, are we looking at disinterested love or are we looking at interested love? Now, to begin with, it's very, very clear that Joel has no interest in Ellie. There are a number of things that actually step between him and developing a relationship or caring for her. She has a very obvious need. She's got to get from point A to point B. Again, for those people who are not familiar with The Last of Us, Ellie has a character who has not been infected by the infection that has actually encapsulated the planet. She's got to be reunited with the Fireflies, who are a sort of revolutionary group at the other side of the country, so that her inability to be infected can be mass-produced and the world is saved. You know, it's a pretty straightforward arc. But Joe has no reason to help her. It's not enough for him that she might even be the solution to the world's problems. He, he for a start, has lost his own teenage daughter and the idea of of becoming responsible for another teenage girl is emotionally very difficult for him. He's actually moved himself over a period of 10 years into a world where he's very transactional. He's a smuggler and he's got to know what's in it for him. He's also much more concerned about someone who isn't a major character, so to speak, in the in the television series, his brother. And so he's keen to try and find his brother. So Ellie stands in the way of all those things. He has no reason to help her. Now, he does do so. And as we would expect, you know, in any sort of storyline that we want to get engaged in, he does become more and more interested in Ellie. And so a relationship blossoms between them. And so he does things for her that look a lot like the Good Samaritans, you know, works. He cares for her. He provides for her. He moves in a way that will keep her safe. And he takes her to places of safety, just like the Good Samaritan does for the injured Jewish man. But the big difference is that Joel is becoming more and more interested in Ellie. You know, this is interested love. He's he's getting a return from her. They are valuing each other. And so he is loving her, you know, in very practical ways. And emotionally, we see the relationship build between them. But the big difference here is this is something that Jesus actually warns us against. You know, he actually says, don't just love those who love you, love those who are your enemies. And so for a, for a beginning point, just as an interesting worldview, we see in The Last of Us something that we we want to understand as noble, you know, the idea that, you know, Joel and Ellie are going to sacrifice and, and do their best to help each other and their relationship is going to develop. But we've got to remember where it comes from. It comes from a, a level of interest. You know, and the philosophy, the worldview that would sit behind this is if somebody becomes valuable to you, then you should care for them. You know, which from a Christian point of view, that's actually the opposite of where we sit. We were not valuable to God, but God reached out to care for us. You know, and so this is something that it's not that we have to be suspicious of it because Joel and Ellie are actually expressing really good things, you know, towards each other. But it does fall short of what God offers. It would be a truly amazing storyline if Ellie continued to be the cantankerous teen which Joel, you know, initially meets. And he has to keep sacrificing for her because he has a greater good in mind rather than just the fact that they develop their relationship together. That would be a very interesting way of pursuing this storyline. It's not the way they're going, and I can appreciate that, but that's the way the world would see it, a very transactional approach to love. Mm. I have two reflections from that. The first is that that whole, you know, who is my neighbor thing, which is what Jesus is talking about, the fact that he portrays and he puts forth the Samaritan as the one who really is the neighbor to the, the Jewish man who, by all accounts, he should have nothing to do with. In, in The Last of Us, the world that we're presented with is like the last place that you would expect or uh, possibly want a display of enemy love in because like that's just going to get you killed, you know, and that's 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 the harsh reality of the world that that we are presented with. And so, you know, 
it's very clear, you know, even you directly quote in your article the fact that Joel says, you know, he and his associates, we're not good people, you know. <laughs> and and we see that over and over and over again that, you know, fundamentally the people in this world they're driven by selfishness and and even the people in this world that claim to to have a greater good in mind if you really boil it down there is still a selfish core to even the most you know noble ideals and look i'm very i want to be very careful that we don't go into spoiler territory here so for those is, of you it is worth watching you know yes. and, and we don't we don't want to kill anybody's interest in this show no it, we just want you to think deeply about what you're actually watching yes 100% and that that leads me to my second reflection which is that selfishness point because not to spoil anything but toward the end of the story there is an act of ultimate selfishness that is put forth by one of the characters that is meant to make us feel very conflicted on one way or the other. And when I think about the relationship between Joel and Ellie, that's that's the core. That's the core of the entire thing. It's not the world. It's not the other characters. It's not the violence. It's not the zombies. It's that relationship, which is supposed to be our emotional core. And it's funny as I've been thinking through this, you know, obviously Ellie, she becomes a she becomes a daughter figure to to Joel, and Joel becomes a father figure to her, and their relationship is the emotional core that we're supposed to really connect with. But as you've already illustrated, even their relationship, it's a deeply selfish sort of transactional relationship when they get past that sort of, you know, I'm just here to deliver you to get some money so that we can be on our way and this is my job, blah, 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 blah. When they actually begin to start feeling those real human feelings toward each other, the father, the daughter, the, the caring for each other, there's still a sense in which, you know, if anybody gets in my way of this relationship, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes, whether it be killing, maiming, cussing out, whatever you know, extreme measures I have to take. Joel, in some ways, grows a lot, but also doesn't grow at all. That's mm. just that's just my reflection. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you, and I think this comes from your basic moral starting point. And maybe this is moving on to the second thing you want to talk about in terms of the morality of of this particular universe. You're right in saying that to be disinterested and, and unselfish in your love is the quickest, you know, way to a full stop for your life in this in this universe. People are starving to death. And people are being shot. You know, it, it, and that's even before we get out to about the the zombie-like creatures that are prowling the wasteland. But the starting point of this universe is that inside of a selfish environment, there's still room to love others, you know? And so you find time and time again, you'll have storylines, side storylines that emerge where people are showing love for each other inside of the context of this selfish world. The difference of a Christian perspective is that despite this, this selfish world, people are beginning with a non-selfish perspective. So everybody in The Last of Us is ending up, you know, in a position where they might be able to offer sacrificial love, you know, to the people around them. Uh, they're ending there. Whereas, you know, from the Christian worldview, you're beginning there. You know, there is nothing that recommends itself. You know, it, it is the, the height of God's love that while we were unlovely, you know, he expresses his love to us. And we have to wait in the last verse for the characters to discover the love in each other, and then it's it's reasonable. And I think that's, you know, one of the sad characteristics of the world in which we live now is that we look at each other, or at least society would have us look at each other in a way for what you return to me. So I love you because you complete me. I love you because you make me feel wonderful. And I love you because you have given so much for me. But these are these are transactional statements. The difference, I mean, if you look at marriage in terms of, you know, it's a it's a passing institution in our modern world. But if you look at marriage from both sides of this equation, what you have in a in a selfish worldview is two people who love each other because of what the other one does for them. 
You know, so you, you know, you are actually so valuable to me because of how you make me feel, because of how you lift me up, because of, because I can't imagine my world without you. And what you actually end up with is two people in this sort of transactional relationship, where if one of them loses the benefit, the relationship crashes. You know, I no longer feel in love with you. I no longer get the return. We've lost that spark. You know, and these are justified storylines in film and television these days. You know, we were once in love and now we're no longer in love. And so we use these these justified storylines to sort of color in our own existence. The whole Christian idea of marriage, for example, is is completely different. You've got two people who are loving the other one more than they love themselves. You know, and so when you have two people sacrificially loving each other, then you actually have, you know, inside of a relationship, two people being loved completely. And so it doesn't, the relationship can continue even though one of those situations might weaken. You know, the relationship can continue even though one member is going through a very difficult period that makes them quite hard to love. But if the focus is on actually disinterested love, then the the marriages continue. And so you actually have in our world two types of relationship. You actually have people who are loving because they feel and are loving in response. And then you've got people who are giving love you know, to people who don't necessarily make them feel loved, but they're giving them because they are motivated by a much higher ideal. And I feel like there's this catchphrase that goes around now, you know, love is love. And it's been used to justify a lot of different sort of models of love in our society as if somehow they were all the same. You know, all love is is equal. All love is the same. But that's not true. There are hierarchies of love and there are higher loves. You know, there are loves that are inspirational loves. And Jesus really wanted to point out to people, look, loving others just because they love you is not much in the way, in the scale of love. But loving others because they need love, you know, is is the highest form of love. And I, I feel like that's one of the the interesting things that, that's coming into sharp focus for me when I watch The Last of Us. I've yet to meet a character in The Last of Us who is loving because someone needs it, not because you know, someone is actually of some benefit to them. There was, I, I don't want to, I'm just going to give a little vignette and hope that this doesn't spoil things for people. But there's this moment where in which Joel and Ellie wander into a cabin uh, in the wilderness, you know, when they're making one of their journeys. And I hoped for this moment, there's this the, there's this old elderly couple who've been living in this cabin all on their own in the wilderness. And there's this moment where the elderly couple are taking care of Joel and Ellie simply because there are a couple of people who need care. And that's probably as close as we've come in the series so far of someone offering disinterested love. There is a side point to be made, and that was that Joel was going to kill them at one point if they proved to be dangerous. So <laughs> you've got, you got to ask yourself how disinterested that love is. But you just get this this touch, this touch of this love that actually is the really inspirational love. I've got nothing to gain from you. I'm not even going to be loved by you, but you need love. And so I'm going to offer that. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I, I think as well, you know, when I think of my relationships, the the love that you're talking about is really only possible with a relationship with God because I don't know that I would be able to maintain that level of love with somebody like, for instance, as cantankerous as Ellie, you know, just loving that person because that's what they need without help from a higher power. I might be able to do it for a, a little bit, but I'm only human, you know, I, I have a, I have flaws and, you know, I have my limits as well. So I think that's where we as, as people of faith, as, as Christians, really have something very unique to offer. Absolutely. In yeah. fact, I think, I think focusing on the love of God gives us two things. It gives us a roadmap first of what love looks like. You know, so when we see how God loves and we have a model to love others, but then, as you so rightly point out, it doesn't just give us a roadmap. It gives us the resources to love. So God doesn't simply say, you know, like this, do that. Like my drill sergeant once said to me in the army, like this, do that. You know, it, that's not God. God is like this. Now let me help you do that. 
you know, and and I think that that's why disinterested love is something that the world is constantly amazed by. You can get a headline uh, in a newspaper any day of the week if you display disinterested love. We see people who are caring for other people in, say, charitable situations and getting nothing from it, and that's headline-worthy. Or we see someone, you know, run into a burning building to save someone, and that's disinterested love, and it's headline-worthy because we're still amazed by this idea of disinterested love. But it's not how we live. In fact, what we actually say, you know, is up to a point. You know, you're you're valuable and I'm prepared to do disinterested love up to a point. But adding up to a point is just hollows out disinterested love. You know, you don't see in The Last of Us characters who are saying, like you don't see Joel saying, you know, I'm going to take care of you no matter what. You do get that sense. But the majority of the characters are actually saying, so long as you don't cost me my own life, you know, it's a, it's, you know, I can be generous to you. I can be helpful to you. I can understand your situation. But the moment you come close to actually, you know, there's a limit, there's a line. And the moment you come close to that line, then we're losing the idea of love. Well, I think that's why a show like The Last of Us is so interesting because the stakes really are so high. You know, we're not just talking about whether you're going to break up with that person because you're having relationship issues or whether you're going to lose a friend or whether, you know, your quality of relationships could be better. Like we're talking about life or death. And it does make me wonder if I was to be thrown into a situation like The Last of Us, where would the limit of my morality be? Would would I be able to have the strength as a Christian, as a person of faith, to be able to live out that, you know, others-centered, disinterested love in, in a world that is so harsh, that is so unforgiving? Or would I just end up like other people? I don't have an answer for that. But it does make me question, you know, if I was ever thrown into that situation, where would the rubber hit the road? you know, for me personally. Well, actually, history tells us that Christians actually have quite a heritage of being in situations much like The Last of Us and behaving in ways that leave serious marks on their society. I'm reminded of a story that Augustine of Hippo, so a quite ancient father of the church, wrote down about a plague that was sweeping through Carthage and people were getting ill and were dying. And the members of his church were going and caring for these people who were dying. So they were taking their own positions of safety and setting them aside in order to actually care for people who are on the brink of death. Now, not everyone lives in this story. And as Augustine notes, people are actually saving, are, are caring for the sick to their own detriment, to the point that they're actually catching you know, the same disease and they're dying. But here we are, 2000 years later on a radio show and I'm talking about what you know these Christians did to people who were you know in no or completely beholden to them you know had no means of, of repaying them and so when you say to yourself gee I wonder what I would do in those circumstances I I'm reminded of something that CS Lewis says he says that God seldom provides us the resources to deal with situations he hasn't asked us to bear you know so so what we see in our situation, we sit down and we go, gee, I don't know if I could ever do anything like Augustine, the members of Augustine's church did, or I'm not sure in the situation of The Last of Us, I could do that, something like that. I could be disinterested. But God, this is part of that whole idea that God just doesn't set an example. He doesn't just give us a roadmap for love. He gives us the resources to do it. So I would go as far as to say, Jesse, that um, – you will find yourself, the closer you live to God, the more enabled you are to deal with the things when the time comes. So Lewis says you probably won't find within yourself the resources to bear a burden which God hasn't asked you to bear. But the Christian is resourced to love. And so we want to leave ourselves open to the fact that when the time comes, God is going to be there with us. So we're not just going to be looking for our own resources to do something. But I suspect, you know, Jesse and a bunch of other people who are listening to this show too are going to find themselves well-resourced to do something that would actually, well, we would hope live in memory for a very long time. Mm, wow. that That's a good word. That's a good word. Thank you for that. 
Speaking of love, I think one of the last things that we can touch on is the breadth and depth of the relationships that we see in the show. There are many different types. You've already referenced a couple, but there are a couple more that we haven't touched on yet. So yeah, let's let's talk about that as, as we get to the end. Yeah, I think that one of the challenges of The Last of Us is the way that its morality is set very much in the world in which we live today. So, you know, if you're watching the show, you're, you're going to be, and you're coming from a Christian perspective, you're going to be unpleasantly surprised every now and again as the relationships that you really value take a turn into territory that you find very, very hard to, to accept. And this is not a criticism of the, the breadth of relationships in it. This is just me mourning a certain loss of, of breadth. There are a couple of occasions in the show where in which we move into same-sex relationships and there's a fluidity of sexuality also in other sort of relationships that take place. And that's perfectly acceptable in in the eyes of the world that has actually created The Last of Us. It's in fact been normalized for many years now, the idea of same-sex relationships and their value and their ability to express every other form of relationship. I'm not going to get into that territory right now. I, I believe that it's polarizing. I don't think that we're going to solve much by trying to argue that one out. I think in this world, we actually have to try and find our way through to loving all people and showing them the love of Christ. But but I am mourning what The Last of Us does away with in its rush to make every intense relationship between two people of the same sex a sexual relationship. We lose something really important along the way. We have a couple of characters, like two men, who are living out their existence in a farmhouse on the path that Joel and Ellie take, and they are same-sex couple. And in their, the beauty of their relationship as it's presented, we have to accept other things as beautiful, which might not be that beautiful. One of them is euthanasia. And I would say that it's only in a constructed world that we can actually look at euthanasia and say, this is a response of beauty. I'm not even sure proponents of euthanasia would say that this is a beautiful thing to do. You know, I think actually that they would say maybe it's a necessary thing to do or it's a merciful thing to do, but I don't think ending someone's life is a beautiful thing to do. Yet we're being asked, you know, inside of the context of these relationships to consider something like that beautiful. So that's that's a first thing, that it's messing with the idea of, of what is in fact actually beautiful in relationship. One of the other things I find that I struggle with when they take same-sex relationships and make them sexual relationships is we lose a whole class of relationship that we should really be looking for. You know, one of the things that's great about friendship is it is the most ubiquitous relationship on the planet. Not everyone can be a father or a mother. Not everyone can have a a deep relationship with you know a brother or a sister. They might not even have a brother or a sister. But all of us have been set in a context where in which we can make and be good friends. In fact, God even sets Himself up as the friend of sinners. You know, this is this is Jesus. You know. He he could he could have chosen a lot of different ways to describe himself, but he chooses friendship as a way to do that. So there is an intensity of relationship between people of the same sex that is possible, and in fact historically has been celebrated. The love of of soldiers fighting side by side with each other, you know, the love of people in intense situations, whether it be war or whether it be adventures, suffering, all sorts of things like that, who somehow find their way through to an intense purity of relationship between each other. And we lose that when we have to convert it straight away to something sexual. We lose this idea that, you know, Jesse and Mark can be best friends for each other. And without it, you know, we lose that whole idea that we can actually have a level of what the Bible called Philadelphos, you know, brotherly love. And that's that whole class of friendship that I'm mourning here. It just seems to be that any time, not just in The Last of Us, but in modern publications now, and in fact, in productions as well, that any time we have two men or two women who truly and selflessly love each other, it must be sexual. It must end up at that point. 
And I want to, I want to ask why. It seems to me that is it just a fast track to something sensational or something exciting? Is that why that choice is often made or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, I think it's more complicated because to be honest, the same sex kiss is about 10 years, you know, gone. Um, it's not like there's going to be any sort of lurid interest or expectation, you know, when we see something like, you know, oh my goodness me, is that man going to kiss that man? You know, we're, we're really past that just for the value. I think what we're trying to do is normalize something in the process and in the process we're losing, we're actually narrowing our field of relationship. We're trying to normalize same-sex relationships. Now, again, without trying to get into that, I want to say it is a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that we're actually narrowing friendship for people who are watching this. Imagine young people who have not been raised, you know, on the idea of, of great noble friendships, you know, of the idea of best friend meaning something other than sexual friend. You know, they are actually losing a whole swathe of friendship that has coloured literature for, you know, more than a thousand years. I'm thinking of of the Iliad, you know, and and the Odyssey. You know, these are some of the oldest novels in in history. And they deal with same sex yet not sexual, you know, friendship. It's coloured our world for thousands of years. And now it's being it's being slimmed down to just one particular expression. And I think it's being done because there is a rush to have an acceptance of same-sex sexual relationships. And we're, and we're just we're losing so much in the process of doing that. Mm. The idea of, you know, the culture war, it's, it's such a, a messy thing where, you know, on, on both sides there is so much hurt and there, there's so much argument and, that you know, all the stuff which is just in many ways not worth getting into but i will you know just in reflection of what you've said one of the more recent examples and i quote unquote recent the last few years of a really great film example of healthy well i don't know if healthy is the right word but really powerful friendship was 1914 between the the two soldiers who go out on this mission and they're kind of you know they start you know not really getting along and yet the experience they have really makes the friendship into something quite powerful. And when, oh, I don't know if I should spoil the movie or not, but when something really violent and significant happens, it's all the more gut-wrenching because of this relationship that these two young soldiers have, have formed. You know, yeah. I grew up on, on The Lord of the Rings and it's the same sort of it's thing. It's the same thing. I was going to actually jump in and say The Lord of the Rings too. Yeah. And for that matter, look, before we talk about The Lord of the Rings, this idea of relationship between men or between women formed in intense situations and finding some new depth without it having to be sexual has been knocking around in our stories for ages. If you want to talk about 1914, and by the way, I don't think you can spoil that film. You would just go see it no matter what. It's a fantastic film. Gallipoli is a is a classic. And you can't imagine the two male characters in Gallipoli somehow having to be a sexual relationship in order to validate their intense, you know, relationship with each other. And you're right, you know, the the way that that film tragically ends is tragic because we've seen the passing of something that is this amazing friendship. And the Lord of the Rings is a transitional relationship. You know, Frodo and Sam begin as master and servant, and by the end of the film, they are they are lovers in the sense of Philadelphos. They value each other as brothers. That's the love that sits between them. They're no longer, you know, they're equals because they pass through the fire and the water and the, the darkness and, and the threats together. But it just would be weird if you had to rewrite The Lord of the Rings to make Frodo and Sam sexual. You know, it, you would just lose so much. But it's interesting that that storyline and for that matter, Gallipoli and 1914, you're you're actually drawing on storylines that are set in cultures that or generated in cultures a hundred years ago. And Tolkien was writing in a period that was reflective uh, of a of a society that actually had a really strong understanding of brotherly love by virtue of things like the First World War and for that matter, the Second World War as you go on. There's just there's a possibility for intense relationship between men, between women who 
value each other solely because they are like-minded. C.S. Lewis says that you know the the basis for that intense friendship is often two minds saying, "So you too, you know, you too see what I see, you too enjoy what I enjoy, you too are like me." It's a meeting of minds, not a meeting of bodies, you know, and and that is a really, really valuable thing that the human race, I hope, won't lose. That's really good. And I think that's a that's a really timely discussion that we, we need to be having more of. I think in a culture that is progressively moving further and further apart, that's becoming more and more disconnected, I think it's a really good thing for us to be talking about how we can connect with each other on a, on a deep level again. Mark, we're coming to the end of our time together. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say about the show or about just the discussion that we've had today as we come to our, our end? Yeah, I would, I would probably finish by saying that noticing the differences in programs like The Last of Us between a worldview that is godless and a worldview of, of our own that it actually has God at the center of it is going to make you enjoy these programs less. <laughs> and, and, and that's a bit of a sad thing, but I want you to still engage with them because they are windows into how the people you know and love around you are thinking. And I think that that's why it's, it is important, it is beholden on us as Christians to, to engage with and understand the culture around us so that we can say, hey, you know, there's another way of thinking that's separate to yours. Otherwise, if we were to simply withdraw in some holy huddle and decide that television is not for me, so I won't watch anything at all, or that doesn't come out of the deep American South, you know, Christian Bible belt or something like that, we're actually missing the opportunity to truly love other people. Because love has at its heart doing what is best for the other person. And sometimes pointing out to other people, there is another way to something that might even be deeper and richer than what you actually have is a loving thing to do. And, you know, watching TV can actually make you aware of the need for love. Yeah, no, so true, so true. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for spending the time with us today. Uh, I really appreciated our conversation. If people want to get in touch with you to chat more about this or anything else, what's the best way that they can do that? Well, you can just Google my name and go to my website and you'll find all of my contact details there. And if you can't remember that, I'm sure the guys at Science will pass something on to me, you know, if you want to contact them. But look, thanks very much for letting me come on the show. Always a pleasure to talk with you guys. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Science of the Times Radio. We will see you in the next episode. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist media podcast. 